The year 2020 will be the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. To commemorate this occasion, the U.S. Treasury Department announced last year that in 2020, Andrew Jackson will be moved to the back of the $20 bill and Harriet Tubman will be the new face of the 20. It's important. This change means that African Americans will appear on our currency for the very first time in our nation's history and a woman will be featured for the first time in more than a century. Uh, Further regarding the significance of this change, there are more than 8.5 billion $20 bills in circulation. 8.5 billion of them. 8.5 billion Harriet Tubmans coming your way. And the seven white men on the seven notes currently in general circulation, just to note, were actually all dead by 1885. Uh, And more than, and of course we want to honor our history, but more than half of American history has happened since 1885. There are other exciting changes coming as well, such as adding the images of Eleanor Roosevelt, Marian Anderson, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the back of the $5 bill, which of course has Abe Lincoln on the front. But for now, I'd like to focus on the life and the legacy of Harriet Tubman and how that can continue to inspire us today. To be honest, everything I learned in school about Harriet Tubman could fit in one sentence. She was a famous conductor on the Underground Railroad who is known as a modern-day Moses for helping liberate so many people, uh, so many enslaved people. I didn't even really know how many. I just knew a lot. The announcement that she will soon be featured on the $20 bill motivated me to learn more. And so in reading Catherine Clinton's excellent 2004 biography of Tubman, the more I learned about her, the more impressed I became. I was also intrigued to see the number of ways that her paths crossed with many of our Unitarian Universalist ancestors. I won't have time to go into those, but just to name a few examples, uh, the Unitarian ministers, um, Thomas Whitworth Higginson, uh, called her the greatest heroine of our age. They did meet in person a number of times, and the Unitarian minister, James Freeman Clark, uh, saw her on the lecture circuit and um, wrote about her great dramatic power in person, telling her story. But to take things in order, let me start at the beginning. Harriet Tubman's story actually hits pretty close to home here in Frederick in a number of ways. She was born a little more than 100 miles southeast of here, likely on the broadest plantation near Bucktown, Maryland, in Dorchester County on the eastern shore. Estimates of her birth range from 1815, if you look at her death certificate, to 1820, to if you look at her gravestone, to 1825, if you were to actually ask Harriet Tubman when she was born. So I don't know if she was you know, trying to shave 10 years off her life or what was going on there. But uh, in the broader sweep of history, she was born approximately 200 years after the first enslaved Africans were sold at the Virginia colony of Jamestown in 1619. So Harriet Tubman was born about 200 years later. Frederick Douglass was both her temporal and her geographic contemporary. He was born in 1818 on a plantation also on Maryland's eastern shore near present-day Easton, less than 30 miles from where Harriet Tubman was born. Uh, 
Tubman died around age 90 in 1913. That was the same year that Rosa Parks was born to sort of continue to place things in history. Uh, Tubman's birth name was Araminta Ross, leading to the nickname Minty. She was one of the last of around a dozen children born to the enslaved couple Harriet Green and Benjamin Ross. Tubman's grandmother was brought to America on a slave ship, and there are a number of indications that Tubman's grandfather was a white man, the um, plantation owner at the Pattison. To begin speaking about Tubman's early childhood, I invite you, in this this next section, uh, which is pretty brief, will probably be the most disturbing of what I'm going to share this morning. It's not too graphic, but just to be honest, uh, picture a five-year-old in your life or try to remember what you were like at five years old. Because when Araminta, the future Harriet Tubman, was five, she was assigned, she was taken from her home and taken to a nearby home of a white woman in the neighborhood who had a new infant. So even though she wasn't far from home, she had to stay in this new master's house full time and was terribly homesick. Because she was so small, she had to sit on the floor to hold the baby. And in addition to caring for this infant full-time, there were many other household chores she was expected to do every day. And after a long day, each day of doing her mistress's bidding, the five-year-old Araminta remained on duty at night and was told to rock the cradle constantly to prevent the baby from disturbing the master or mistress. And if the baby wailed, the mistress would not get up and comfort the child. She would instead grab the small whip from the shelf and punish her enslaved attendant for her negligence. Tubman had scars on her neck from those whippings for the rest of her life. Uh, and I can think, I mean, just last night, I was in Baltimore visiting my sister-in-law. I have, she has three children. The oldest is a five-year-old boy. The youngest is three months old. And so I you know, saw that five-year-old holding that three-month-old. Very cute, right? But in Harriet Tubman's case, it was truly harrowing. Uh, the, even during this early period, Tubman sometimes resisted her oppressors. One account tells of her biting her master's knee. This was a different master than the one I was just telling you about. In this instance, her strategy paid off. She was left alone in the future by that master. It must have been like, she's the one with teeth. Let's stay away from her. Uh, she served a number of families in similar capacities through age 12 when she came big enough to do hard labor in the fields. But in another early sign of her bravery, Araminta blocked the path of an overseer. Um, When she was out in the field, uh, there was an enslaved field hand who had deserted his post. She stepped in the way. Tragically, a lead weight thrown at the deserter uh, that she didn't see struck her in the head and caused a quite serious scar. She slipped in and out of a lethargic sleep for weeks, and for the rest of her life, she suffered from episodes that were similar to narcoleptic spells, or that were narcoleptic spells. So as frequently as seven times a day, she would, without warning, if she was having a conversation, if she was working, she would fall into a stupor and then a deep slumber, and then Relatively soon, she would wake back up and just continue the conversation or continue working. Uh, so consider how impressive it is that the entire time she was leading, you know, multiple successful runs on the Underground Railroad, multiple time each of those many day-long trips, she had multiple narcoleptic episodes. In 1844, when Araminta was in her early 20s, she married a free black man named John Tubman. Tubman was the family name of wealthy white plantation owners in Cambridge, Maryland, and many blacks in the area were known um, by the name Tubman. Uh, 
So Araminta received that last name Tubman from her husband, but Harriet was the name she chose for herself in honor of her mother when she reached freedom. Many enslaved people who reached captivity did choose new names for themselves, mostly for pragmatic reasons. If you were going by a different name, it was hard for those fugitive slave catchers to find you. There were many remarkable events to come in Tubman's life, but her escape alone was remarkable. The overwhelming majority of successful fugitive enslaved people were men, but here was a girl in her 20s venturing out of her home counties for the first time in her entire life and hoping to make it to freedom on her own. And she did. That 90-mile journey from Maryland's eastern shore to the Pennsylvania line would have taken Tubman anywhere from 10 days to three weeks on foot, and there would likely have been hounds after her and many other um, similar things. During her escape, one of the first people to help her find the direction of freedom was a white woman. This act of allyship was significant because aiding a fugitive slave was itself a crime with quite stiff penalties. But history remembers Tubman, and the Treasury Department chose her for the $20 bill, not merely for being an enslaved woman who emancipated herself, but for her courage in repeatedly risking re-enslavement in order to free hundreds of other enslaved human beings. Moreover, although white northern males dominated the abolitionist movement, a formerly enslaved black southern female with narcolepsy personally led more than three hundred enslaved people to freedom. As Tubman famously said near the end of her life, I was the conductor on the Underground Railroad for eight years, and I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. The first time Tubman risked returning to slave territory was in December of 1850. She was motivated to free her favorite niece and her niece's children, who she had heard were on, uh, due to go to the auction block. She was motivated um, um, in spring 1851. She risked a second trip to free one of her brothers, and at the same time, she freed two other men who were nearby. In the fall of 1851, her third trip was to persuade her husband, John Tubman, to come with her, only to discover that in less than two years, he was not only with another woman, but that that woman was pregnant and that he wanted to stay with this new woman. John and Harriet uh, had never had children together. Initially, she thought that she was going to go right in and make all the trouble she could, but she changed her mind and decided that if he could do without her, she could do without him. Instead, she continued to be a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She developed a pattern that allowed her to successfully ferry about 10 fugitives once a year. She kept to the back roads and never traveled by day while in what she called the land of Egypt. One admirer notes, she always came in the winter when the nights were long and dark and the people who had homes stayed in them. Since most enslaved people were given Sunday as a day off, Tubman would often begin on a Saturday night so that the missing fugitives would not be discovered until Monday morning, giving them a significant head start. And over time, she began to know that area, that territory, very well. 
The accounts of her journeys make it clear that Tubman was not afraid to be authoritative when needed. She always carried a pistol, and on one occasion when someone in her group became nervous and just said, you know, I think I want to just return to the plantation because I'm worried. I think it would be better to then risking going on. The fear was that that person would then endanger the whole group. The others tried to persuade him to keep going, but he just said, I'm not going any farther. Tubman pulled out her gun, pointed it at his head, and said, move or die. Fortunately, there's a happy ending to this story. (laughs) They all made it safely to Canada. The lesson here is that Harriet Tubman don't play. Along these lines, some of you may recall that among the secret six who helped fund and supply John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, again, just down the road from here, among the, uh, that 1859 raid on the Federal Armory of Harper's Ferry, among the, the secret six, five were Unitarians and two were Unitarian ministers. Brown was so impressed with Harriet that he called her General Tubman and paid her $25 in gold to use local recruit, to find local recruits for him in Canada. Unfortunately, instead of being able to aid Brown's planning, Tubman fell ill in Massachusetts, something related to her head injury. She later recovered. But in one of history's unanswered questions, we'll never know how might John Brown's activities had gone differently if Tubman had been able to advise Brown based on the meticulous planning that led to her many, many successful raids instead of Brown's ill-planned impetuousness that got too many people needlessly killed. Nicknames of General Tubman aside, Tubman did serve in the Union cause during the Civil War. She assisted uh, the Army with housing and hygiene for the hundreds and eventually thousands of contrabands who fled behind Union lines. She also covertly, during the Civil War, went into the Carolinas within the Civil War to help save the Union under the auspices of the Secretary of War. And although it took 30 years, she did eventually succeed in having her wartime contributions officially recognized in the, con- in the congressional record. She was also rewarded with a long overdue government pension for her service. I should also mention that although Tubman said that her first husband, John Tubman, had dropped out of her heart after he chose another woman, she never considered remarrying until John Tubman was tragically shot by a white man who he was arguing with on the side of the road. A little more than a year after becoming, from her perspective, a widow in the eyes of God, she married Nelson Davis, a veteran from a black regiment in the Union Army. When they wed in March of 1869, Tubman was around age 47, again because of her, you know, being, we don't have a birth certificate for her because she was enslaved. Uh, so Tubman was around age 47. Uh, Davis was around age 25, actually, approximately two decades her junior. However, by all accounts, the differences in their ages were insignificant to them. They were married for 19 years, and despite him being significantly younger, she outlived her second husband by more than two decades. Even in her later years, she continued to work for social justice. She was the administrator of a home for elderly people of color who otherwise would not have anywhere to live. But finally, in March 1913, she succumbed to pneumonia. She was buried with military honors, and Booker T. Washington, the most prominent race leader of his day, traveled to upstate New York to make the keynote address. So as Unitarian Universalists, the second of our six sources are the words and deeds of prophetic men and women who challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, 
with compassion, and with the transforming power of love. So a few years from now, in 2020, when you start seeing Harriet Tubman's face on the $20 bill, may you be reminded each time, you know, the ATM, $20 bills most of the time, right? Each time, may you be reminded when you see her face that she is one in a long line of oppressed people throughout history who risked their lives to show that an unjust law is no law at all. In so many ways, she was one of a long line of women about whom it can be said she was warned, she was given an explanation, nevertheless, she persisted. But before concluding, I want to invite us to consider how prophetic activists like Harriet Tubman um, can challenge and inspire us today to, again, confront powers and structures of evil with justice, with compassion, with the transforming power of love. In that spirit, I invite you to hear the poem, If You Could, by Danny Brick. He writes provocatively that, I know, I know, if you could go back, you would walk with Jesus, wouldn't you? You'd march with King and maybe assassinate Hitler while you were at it. You would at least hide Jews in your basement, and it would all be so clear to you. But the truth is that people then, just like you, were baffled. They had bills to pay, and they had children that they didn't understand. And they, too, were desperate for normalcy, that they often made anything normal, even turning everything inside out, even killing. And so they hid in their houses, and they watched television, if they had a television, and they wrung their hands, or they didn't. And your hands, your hands are just like their hands. They're lined, they're permeable, they're small. And sometimes you or me, we follow Caesar. We quote something that sounds a little bit like McCarthy. And we sometimes sound like we want to make Germany great again. Sometimes we're afraid and our parents are sick and our jobs don't pay enough. And where's our dignity? And those kids sitting down on the highway and chaining themselves together and blocking traffic, what's their problem? And and what's that kid doing? Well, that kid, that's King, and this is Selma, and Berlin, and Jerusalem. And now is when they need you to be brave. Now is when you need to go back and forget everything you know and give up the things you're chained to. And just as we look back on Jesus and King and Bonhoeffer, now is the time that we are charged to make it look easy in our grandkids' history books. What will be written in those history books? Now, looking back at us, is when it will all be clear to our grandchildren. It will all be clear to them, either our failure to act or our heroic action. A few more things. Um, Perhaps it's clear, but in case it's not, it may be important to articulate. I may say more about this in a few weeks, but... You know, we're a big tent here as, as Unitarian Universalists. You know, we have six sources. We talked today about how we tend to substitute how will we treat one another here, covenantal for trying to say we all believe in common. And, and regarding some of what I was talking about at the end of the sermon, that includes politically, of course, right? You use tend to be free thinkers. I think that, you know, 
uh, very, you know, thinking about all the ways that that's just not quite right. We can always think of exceptions to that. And, and, the, and as many of you have heard me say before, the liberal turn in religion of which we are a part is not about being a um, you know, small L political liberal. It's about being a big L enlightenment liberal, right? It's about being for freedom and reason and pluralism. Um, and, so say, and having the freedom to disagree, being able to use your reason to think what is truly logical and what makes sense and what is the evidence in my own experience show me and, and making room for a plurality of, of people to, to disagree um, religiously, philosophically, politically. Uh, and so when I speak about the need for um, resistance, that means different things for different people. And, and to me, uh, I, I invite you to consider that it is important to distinguish between, for example, President Trump's conservative policies that one would expect a Republican president to do, and the aspects that, at least in my judgment, are potentially undermining our constitutional and democratic norms. Those are two very different things and things that we need to be, uh, I think, need to be clear about. You may disagree with both, but specifically when I, t- when I reference Bonhoeffer and people like that, I'm speaking about the undermining of democratic and constitutional norms. I'm not speaking about just what one would expect any Republican president to do or any Democratic president to do. So things like calling the press the enemy of the people, right? That's what, that's what Hitler did, for example, the Lugenpresse, the lying press. So that's the having a free press, defending a free press is a vital part of our democracy. So uh, a so-called judge, right? Depend, um, defending separation of powers and checks and balances, that is an essential part of our democracy that must be defended. Um, the, you know, agreeing about shared reality, about facts. I mean, that's, you know, calling someone out who is a serial liar is, is important. And, you know, so protecting the truth. I mean, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning is, a, is an important Unitarian Universalist principle. So anyway, I just invite us to be aware of that separate, distinguishing those things that are actually the, what is actually, you know, um, undermining our democratic and constitutional norms and what maybe some of us don't like. So just think about those things and and what we're talking about regarding resistance and resilience. Uh, And regarding the timetable for justice, to make one final connection back to Tubman, there was a real interesting uh, encounter between her and another um, famous black abolitionist with the last name um, Garnet, who said, you know, I... I like what you're saying, Harriet. I hear your support for John Brown, your inspiration by his martyrdom. But, you know, just saying, honestly, I think maybe our grandchildren will see emancipation. But Tubman said, no, no, I disagree. We're going to see it, and we're going to see it soon. And it turned out in her instance, she was right, that justice was coming soon, but because she and others were, you know, really taking major risks with their lives to bring about that justice. And so none of this is made to make you feel guilty or that you, you know, that's, that's not the point. The point is just to, when you see that $20 bill, to think maybe, you know, what's that next step I could take, right? Could I make a phone call today? Could I carve out time to make a phone call? I don't to tell you what you need to tell your representatives, but to call your representatives, to be an engaged citizen. Can I take just a, can I take that next step of speaking up when I hear somebody saying something that I know isn't true? Can I, you know, what's that next step for you? And that, that's, that's the point, to take that next step. What does that mean for you? So, to, and when you take that next step, continue it and do it in love. 
do justice and make peace. And as you go through your life, whatever taste or touch of hope, of love, or peace or joy that you've had in this time and place, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.